Well, a very good evening to you. It's great to see you here again. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of John. Uh, last week being Easter, we sort of jumped forward into chapters 19 and 20. And uh, if you forgive me, this week we're jumping back and we're in John chapter 15. So uh, do, uh, do keep your Bibles open there. If you've been around church for a while, maybe you've heard Christians talking about their quiet times, uh, like sort of devotional times where they uh, sit aside half an hour or so and they read their Bibles and they pray. Um, the church that uh, I became a Christian at and kind of uh, grew up in, uh, this was a thing. Everybody had to have a quiet time. And there were little books that you had and there were little techniques that you would use. And this became almost a law that you know, the ordinary life of a Christian will be you, know, you have your quiet time every day. And uh, the funny thing is uh, that Jesus never seems to command this. It doesn't actually, you know, there is no commandment anywhere in the gospel that says you must have your quiet time. So, you know, is that really something we should be doing? Is that part of the ordinary life of a Christian person? Well, I'm very excited about John chapter 15 today, which we're going to be looking at, because I think actually that kind of life of engaging with God in Bible and prayer is the sort of thing that Jesus in some sense, has in mind. So look at that as we come through. So uh, we are in John chapter 15, and it begins with one of those I am statements where Jesus says, uh, you know, as he has six or seven other times in John's gospel, uh, I am the light of the world, or I am the good shepherd, or I am the resurrection and the life, or I'm the way, the truth and the light. Every time he has one of these I am statements, he picks up a very significant Old Testament metaphor or a theme and he brings it forward relating it to himself. So that's where we're going here at the beginning of verse 1. Do you see it there? Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So Jesus declares himself to be the true vine. And of course, once you have a true vine, that means somewhere there must be a false or failed vine. And any Jewish person reading this passage would know that throughout the Old Testament, the scriptures often describe the nation of Israel as the vine. As God's vine, God is the, he's the vine grower, the gardener. I think, I think viticulturalist is the proper term. And so we, we read about that in Isaiah 5 just a few moments ago, Jeremiah 2, the same, Psalm 80, lots of other places. The problem with Israel as God's vine is that after all God did for his vine, they still turned their back on him. They still ignored him and they produced no good fruit at all. In a sense, Israel has cut itself off from God by refusing to walk in his ways. No fruit there. But now, on this night before Jesus goes to the cross, he claims that he is the true vine, the true Israel. All that Israel was supposed to be, Jesus is. Israel's relationship with God was in tatters. But Jesus alone is faithful to God. He is uniquely in right relationship with God. And so following through on that word picture, 
Who is God in this? Well, God is the, he's the expert gardener. He tends and prunes the vine that he loves so that it will be more fruitful. So pruning uh, is evidence of the gardener's care and skill. Now, I've noticed that uh, you can tell which people in Roseville are uh, you know, good gardeners. You, know, you walk past the house and you go, mm, nice hedge. Right? And a gardener lives in that place. And then you, know, you might walk past, say, my place and go, hmm, not so much. Right. You can tell the love of the gardener by their pruning skill, by their hedge. And Jesus wants to say to his disciples close with him, God is already at work in you. He says in verse 3, you might see it there, you disciples are already pruned clean. The word clean there is actually the same as the word pruned in verse 2. Uh, the translators just decide to play it out differently, I guess. But the action of God's work and God, Jesus' words in their lives reveals God's work in them. So it's a sense where God views these disciples as part of the Jesus vine already. He wants them to bear more fruit, so he's been at work pruning them. So the first thing that happens in this great metaphor that is, is on display here is that Jesus establishes the relationship, the most important relationship between himself, the true vine, and the gardener, God. That's the primary thing going on here. And only once that is established does Jesus move on in verse 5 to start to talk about the branches. And so that's where we go to in verses 5 and 6, Jesus' relationship with his disciples. So uh, verse 5, I am the vine, so restatement there, I am the vine, you are the branches, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. So if Jesus is the true vine, extending that Old Testament metaphor, the disciples now are Jesus' branches and it follows that they are in right relationship with God only because of their connection with Jesus the vine. And the beauty I find in the picture of vine and branches is the connection is so close. The union between vine and branches is so organic, so strong. that you, Can you tell where the branch starts and the vine stops? In the picture you can't, can you? The key idea in verses 5 and 6 has to do, therefore, with this word remain. If we remain in Jesus, we bear much fruit. If we don't remain in Jesus, we are cut off and discarded. So let's just kind of zoom in on this word remain for a few moments. Notice remain is a, it's an active verb, right? That means we've got to do something here. Uh, it involves our will. It involves our attention and our effort. It's, this is not about becoming a Christian. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples who are already clean by his word. They are already loved by the gardener. Remaining, it seems, therefore, is what you do ordinarily as a Christian. Remember, Jesus is just about to leave his beloved disciples. He's preparing them for life when he is not physically present among them. What do you do? You remain. 
you endure, you stay, <laughs> you dwell. Actually, the word really just means you make your home there. Uh, there's a, a couple who, uh, uh, from our earlier services this morning who moved house yesterday. And uh, last night was their very first night in their new house. And they were a little kind of, you know, still getting settled in. The paintings weren't up on the wall yet, and they were quite disturbed about that apparently. But you've got to make, you know, you've got to put the pot plants up on the windowsill, all that kind of thing. You make home, you settle in. And this word remain is really about making home, the place you belong with God. It's the same word that Jesus used back in chapter 14, verse 23, where Jesus said that he and his father would love his disciples and make their home with them, would dwell with them, would remain with them. And so having already said, look, the Father and I are going to come and make home with you, now, my disciples, you make home with us, remain in us and we with you. I wonder what you think that would look like day to day, to remain with God. I, I could say that, Cultivating this sense of home with God is done best in a regular devotional life. There is, in fact, a spiritual reality to this intimate, organic relationship with God. God's Holy Spirit really does make his home in the life of every believer. But there is also a lived experience, if I could put it that way. Regular disciplines of prayer of reading the Bible, solitude with God, fasting, community, worship, the Lord's Supper, church, fellowship. All of these things give an existential reality to our relationship with God. We feel this. We walk with God through those various spiritual disciplines, if I may call them that. Certain traditions... Uh, of Christians interpret this passage uh, of you know, remaining or abiding with the vine as a particular kind of special prayer where you kind of commune with God 24-7. I want to say, why limit it to that? Isn't our experience of God far greater than just one kind of prayer? Now, I imagine that there could be some people sitting here tonight who are thinking, wow, all this talk about a relationship with God seems pretty foreign to me it it sort of feels weird that's the case it may illustrate the fact that your connection with god is kind of meager kind of skinny and it could use a little devotional life you see actively choosing to remain in jesus in in the ways that we just talked about in other ways that is really the human side of our connection with god we experience god in the context of a devotional life with him. And the natural result of that connection with God is is the fruit, right? If If there is no connection with God, there'll be no fruit. That's why some branches are kind of, you know, they're thrown away and burned. That's they're good for nothing else. No connection, no fruit. However, with a connection, a a spiritual engagement with God, there is fruit. So that's the That's the spiritual reality, if you like, that this metaphor, this picture of the grapevine is showing us. We know Jesus is using a metaphor here. It's an illustration. So what actually is the fruit of this relationship? What is the fruit that Christians produce 
that demonstrates that they really are connected with God. Well, let's first of all look at what it's not, okay? Usually we latch onto that word fruit and we say, oh yeah, I know what that is. I, I, I've seen that in other parts of the Bible. Galatians 5 talks about the fruits of the Spirit. You know, there's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, self-control, all those sorts of things. It's the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. That's what's in Jesus' mind here. There's a problem though because when Jesus says this to his disciples, Galatians 5 hasn't been written yet. It's another 15 plus years away. before. So I don't think that's forefront of John's mind. The answer's not, relate, not unrelated, but we shouldn't really jump to Galatians 5. Another kind of fruit that some people have in mind is they think, oh yes, Jesus is talking about the fruit that comes from bearing witness to Jesus, the fruit of evangelism. Uh, they want to say that you know, bearing fruit means that we make more disciples. Uh, we bring Jesus to others. That's a great answer, but I don't think it's what Jesus has in mind here. This is not the Great Commission. So what I want to suggest is instead of looking at other parts of the Bible, we actually need to look at this part of the Bible to see what Jesus means by bearing fruit. And actually the answer is found in verses 7 through 17, the rest of the passage. You see, what happens now... I think, is that Jesus moves from the metaphor, from the word picture, you know, vine, gardener, grapes, branches, and now he starts to talk about the reality itself. That is, the relationship between Jesus' disciples and God himself. Now that he's leaving to go to the cross, this is the fundamental reality of life as a Christian that he wants to address. So I'm going to get to the fruit, but we're going to have to do it in the context of verses 7 to 17. And I want to suggest actually that 7 to 17 should actually read as a separate paragraph uh, in our Bibles with you know, the previous paragraph finishing at the end of verse 6 and not at verse 8 as our NIV has it. You know, um, the original manuscript, of course, didn't have any punctuation. It didn't have paragraphs. It didn't even have spaces between the words. So the NIV translators have done a good job in helping us kind of really understand that. But I think they could have been a little more helpful if they had put the break after verse 6. Let me explain. I think that verses 7 through 17 show us a very carefully worked structure where some ideas repeat over again. Did you notice that as we read through it? We seem to be going around in circles almost. As we look at this a little more closely, actually there's some bookends here, a beginning and the end that are the same and then parts in the middle that match. And as these paired ideas work, we come to a singular climax in the centre. And so I'm going to call this literary device, this pattern, a chiasm. There's other names for it, but I like this one. This isn't a strict chiasm, but it seems to me the best way to understand this repetition of ideas. So here's what the chiasm looks like. The bookends occur in verses 7 and the back half of 16 and 17. The promises of answered prayer. Right? What should we be asking for? Well, the next steps inward make that clear. Verses 8 and 16. We should be asking that we will bear fruit. Okay, verse 8, this bearing of the fruit is to the Father's glory. Verse 16, we are chosen to bear fruit, fruit that will last. Now as we move the next step in toward the centre of the chiasm, the heart of the matter, verses 9 and 10, are paired with verses 12 to 15. 
It's all about love. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus has loved us just as the Father has loved him. And so now, just as Jesus has kept the Father's commands, we too ought to remain in his love by keeping his commands. And what is his command? Well, verse 12, it's love. And then at the very center of this chiasm, the result. Where does this take us? Joy. I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So I think that's the basic structure here, which makes very clear what this word remaining in him is all about. This metaphor of the vine and the branches, where branches we need to remain in the vine, what's it going to look like? I think the chiasm explains the metaphor. So let's have a little look at each of those sections. First of all, the bookends. <laughs> Asking God, remaining in Jesus, making our home in him, continuing in him, begins with prayer. Our lives as Christians are lives spent in communication with God, talking with him, spending time with him. Perhaps a little surprisingly, asking God for things. It is good and it honours Jesus' invitation here to actually ask for things in prayer. Sometimes we can be a bit shy about making our requests to God because it sounds a bit crass to be always asking for stuff, doesn't it? But notice that both verses 7 and 16 invite us to ask such that God will do it, that he'll give us what we ask. So dare we not ask? Will we disbelieve God and remain quiet? What is it that you'd ask God for? Well, the next step in the passage makes it clear, doesn't it? Verses 8 and 16, Jesus says, we should be asking God for fruitfulness. Previously, we've observed in, in John that Jesus promises that he will answer prayer. And, and it seems to be that there are no conditions upon answering our prayers, but they do have a purpose that directs them. We pray, we ask God such that he would be glorified. And so again, in verse 8, you see it there. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. A little quick reality check for us. How important do you think prayer is among us? Is it foundational to our lives as Christian people? As Jesus talks to his disciples about, you know, here's how to live as I'm gone, as I return to the Father, he, he assumes that we're going to pray. It's obvious. It's just the basics of being one of my followers. So how important would you say prayer is in our church life? You know, how much time as a community do we invest in prayer? How much time in our meetings? How much time in our services? How much time in your small group when it meets? When we call a parish-wide prayer meeting, how many people do you think turn up? Well, you only know if you turn up, right? When Jesus says that the branches are the ones who remain in him, stay connected with the vine, the practicalities of that begin with prayer. And prayer is fueled by God's word. 
You see verse 7 there. If my words remain in you. How do you think God's words dwell, have their home in you? You meditate on them. You fill your mind, you fill your heart with God's word. Often, God's word remains in you and you'll find that that is an incredible springboard for prayer. I want to challenge each one of us personally and I want to challenge us collectively as a Christian community to give ourselves to prayer. That's the basic beginning of living the Christian life as Jesus describes it here. That's how the branches remain in the vine. So what do you reckon our prayer life is like? I'll leave you to ponder that. We've said already that one of the things that we should be praying for is fruitfulness. So now it becomes kind of clear, well, what exactly is that fruit that we should be praying for? The chiasm steps in to show us that the fruit is love. Christian character and Christian virtue, like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, is very great, is important, but Jesus is much more specific here. It's love. Making disciples is very important, but Jesus has something else in mind here. The fruit that we should be praying for is the fruit of love. You might have noticed, verses 9 and 10 Direct us to love God. Okay, Let's pray that we will glorify God by loving him. Loving him with a love that expresses itself in obedience. You pray that you'll be obedient to God. Is that something you pray for? Well, it's in the Lord's Prayer, right? We pray it every time. And we pray, lead us not into temptation. We prayed in the negative. I, don't let me get into temptation. No, I don't want to go to temptation. What's the opposite of temptation? Well, surely it's obedience. Will you pray that love for God will overflow in obedience in your own life and in the lives of us all? So first part of this uh, pair of things about love is love for God. And then do you notice how the second part, verses 12 through 15, is focused more on our love for each other? Love God, love for each other in verses 12 to 15. How much should we love each other? Verse 12 says, we're to love each other as much as Jesus does. And a week after Easter, that's a lot. He laid down his life for us on the cross. There is no greater love than that, that we should Live as Jesus did and lay down our lives for one another in love. This past week we remembered Anzac Day along with, I imagine, many, many others speaking in public services of remembrance. I quoted these words of Jesus. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Will you pray that we will love each other as much as the person who sacrifices their life for the sake of another? Love costs, doesn't it? Love has a cost. Uh, do you love despite the cost? Let's try another little experiment. Um, let's pause and just have a look around the room. Just look around, see who's here tonight. Check them out. You might, you know, good. Um, as you looked around the room then, did you, see, you probably saw some people that you know. Um, maybe you saw some... People that you don't know. People whose names that you don't know. Did you dare look anyone in the eye that you don't know very well? Didn't see a lot of that, right? 
does the cost to your time and your agenda and your stuff limit you from loving the people in this room? How wonderful would it be if the people in our community said, Oh, St Andrew's Church, they're the guys who love each other so much. Are you part of them? How wonderful that would be. Do you want to be part of a church with a reputation for love? I sure do. What a wonderful thing to belong to the church that has a reputation far and wide for loving God, for loving one another, and loving the community in which we live. That's a church that's remaining in Jesus, that is abiding in the vine, as the, as the old version used to say. And you know what the result of that kind of love is? The very centre, the climax of this chiasm tells us the result of all of that is joy. See verse 11. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Now in the being of God, there is perfect joy. There is a supreme happiness of pleasure, delight, that does not change. That doesn't come and go. It's not kind of wishy-washy depending on circumstances. This joy that God has, he wants to give to us. He wants our joy to be complete so we lack nothing. Some people work so hard in their lives to fill themselves up with some kind of joy, so many things, with with money or power or sex or fame, but they never find it. They never find satisfaction and they never do until they give it up in order to love God and love other people. God who has come to us in the person of the Holy Spirit, God who has grafted us into his own very life, that just as the branches join to the grapevine, this God has a joy that he wants to share with you. To share with us. And as he does, that will satisfy us and fill us so that we are complete. This supreme joy is found in love. Love for God, love for others. And at the end of this incredible chiasm, just in case we missed it, Jesus simply commands, verse 17, my command is this, love one another. Do you think that we should congratulate a branch for staying connected to the vine? Probably not. It's the only way it's going to live. We just do it. That's the ordinary life of a Christian. But should we be concerned when the branch looks sort of dry and lifeless because its connection to the vine is somehow strangled? Of course we should be concerned. Today we've pondered, I think, a very significant Old Testament metaphor that Jesus has filled out for us. He is the true vine, the vine that is carefully tended by his Father and loved by him. And we're his branches. We are the branches that are profoundly connected and utterly dependent upon the vine for life. And we are to remain In the vine, to make our home there, to center our lives on him, and thereby we will produce 
fruit. The fruit of love, which is the objective evidence that we really are Jesus' disciples. And so will you pray with me that we will produce the fruit of love? Now, great God, we thank you that our Lord Jesus is the true vine who alone is in right relationship with you. We, we thank you so much that you have connected us to him by the work of your spirit. We pray that we might truly remain in him. And so might you produce the fruit of love in our lives wherein we will delight to obey your every command and where we will delight in the satisfaction of your joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.